We're going to be looking at the story of the resurrection as it is written in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And that's going to begin in chapter 28, verse 1. Matthew 28, verse 1 this morning. Give you a second till I stop hearing pages flutter. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. Now, there's a few things we need to understand before we get into the heart of this message. Uh, The the first is just a simple part of the narrative story. Uh, You don't have to turn here, but it's only a page behind. If we look at chapter 27... And if we look at verse 57 down to 61, we have the story of Jesus being buried. And it's important for us to understand something about that before we get into the message today. So let me just read that for us quickly. When it was evening, this is back on Good Friday, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And so what we need to know about that part of the story, let this stick in your brain because we're going to come back to it later, is that... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the ones who we begin our Easter reading with in chapter 28, were there when Jesus was buried. So the two Marys were standing there opposite the tomb when the body was carried, and they watched the body be carried into the tomb. They watched the men who had carried Jesus' body into the tomb come out empty-handed, so they knew they had left the body in there. And then they watched as the stone was the heavy, impossible-to-move-for-them stone was rolled in front of the door. And so what that tells us is the two Marys that we see here in this story, the two Marys knew 
where Jesus was, right? They, they knew he was in the tomb. Now, if you spend any time reading the Easter stories, it's one of many stories in the New Testament, but to me, it's one of the, the big ones that reminds us that there was so much going on in those days, in the life of Jesus and of the disciples that we know so much about that we are unaware of, right? Because we don't really know much of anything about this Joseph of Arimathea guy until this passage. If you read the story in the Gospel of John, we see what what John tells us. He includes another detail, which is that it was not only Joseph, but Nicodemus of the Pharisees that prepared Jesus's body for burial. And that makes sense because it's also John who tells us the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And so what we see is in John, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. They have this discussion. We get John 3.16 out of it, right? And then we hear nothing else about Nicodemus until all of a sudden he's one of two people who prepared Jesus' body for burial. So going just by our text, Nicodemus talks to Jesus once and then disappears, but clearly he continued to be Involved, And in the same way, in Matthew, as we read the story, there was so much happening that we don't know about. We don't know the, the details of where Jesus' body was kept while Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for it. We don't know who was involved in that. We don't know how long any of this took. But we also know that the details were given, were given for a reason. And this is something that I'll probably remind you of often, that there were so many things that the gospel writers could have included, but they didn't have space for it. So when we see a detail in the biblical text, we're going to pay attention to it because there wasn't a lot of room on that page. And if the gospel writer chose to include something, it's there for a purpose. And so when I see something like this account, that shows us in this one verse that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. It's there for a purpose. So that's the first thing I want you to understand about this passage. Uh, Because if you just read Matthew 28, as I did earlier this week, um, and uh, and in the, the past days and weeks preparing for Easter, I started, of course, with the passage for today. Then a little question popped into my head was, wait a minute, how did they know where the tomb was? How did they know which tomb to go to um, at at all? There's, I'm sure, many places around Jerusalem Jesus could have been buried. How did they know? And then, of course, I flipped back and I found this, the rest of the passage, and I was reminded of it because I had forgotten about it, and now we understand. So we know that the two Marys knew where they were going, And more importantly for us today, they knew Jesus was in that tomb. There's something else I want us to understand, and this is less of a uh, detail within the story. It's more just a reminder of the, the, the mindset of Easter and what we need to be remembering. And it's this. In verse 9, Jesus appears to the two women. And it says, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I walked up to someone and greeted them with the word greetings. Anybody? Has anybody anybody greeted anyone 
with the word greetings anytime soon. Re really? Yeah? Okay, so it's just not a thing that works for me. I'm glad it works for some of you, right? It's not a word I say. And certainly, and we have this a lot in, in Greek and especially in Hebrew, there's, there's ways of greeting another person that we just don't have the language for in English. Um, in Greek, this word that's, that's translated greetings is the, the Greek word kairo, uh, and it means rejoice and be glad, right? So it's not just a, when I hear greetings, I think of greeting cards and just a, some kind of generic hello, right? It's like saying, it's like saying hi, it just, it's just, are you shaking your head, am I wrong about that? Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, to me, in my context in English, it seems pretty simple. But I don't know everything. In Greek, it means rejoice. But that's not what's interesting about the word. What's interesting about this word in this passage, because maybe everyone in the room knows the deeper meaning of the word greetings, and it's just me that's not good at English. Here's what's interesting. You know the time before this that the word greetings is used in the Gospel of Matthew? Before that. If you go back a couple chapters, greetings, this word Cairo, is the word that Judas uses to betray Jesus. When Judas, if you flip back in Matthew to the passage where, where Judas walks up to Jesus in the garden and identifies him to the crowd that's with him so that they can arrest him, he uses the word greetings, rejoice, be glad. Which, first of all, doesn't seem like the right word for Judas to be using in the situation. But here's why it's important for us today. It's important for us today because it is a reminder that everything that Jesus touches, especially after the resurrection, everything that Jesus touches, he redeems. And that this word, and it's just a word, right? It's a pretty simple thing. It's a small thing. But this word that was used to betray the Son of God who came to live with us and to dwell with us, who sacrificed so much to be with us and be one with us, the word that betrayed him is also the first word spoken by him to two of his followers. He redeems the word. That as we read through, as we read through the New Testament, as we think about that word, we could only think about, well, that's the word that betrayed Jesus. That, that's just the word that was used to announce what evil was about to do. Instead, now it's been used to announce what God has done in the resurrection of the dead. It's a reminder. This isn't the sermon. So don't, don't fill up your note page yet. This isn't the sermon yet. This is just getting us ready. It's a reminder to us that everything Jesus touches, he redeems. All right, now we're going to get into the sermon. 
So it's after the Sabbath. It's the first day of the week. The two Marys go to the tomb. It's interesting. I, uh, I spent some time diagramming out all of the details from all of the stories of the resurrection. And every gospel writer, as they often do with stories, focuses on different pieces of the story. And uh, there's a lot of things that fit together. There's a lot of things, and I try to be careful about going too far with this. But if you look at all the details side by side, you can start to piece together this bigger picture of all that's happening. There are very few specific details that all of the gospel writers include. One of the details that everyone includes is that Mary Magdalene was there and that, that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Um, there are angels included. What's interesting is that one detail that is absent from every single gospel account is an actual account of Jesus being raised from the dead. Has anybody ever noticed that? There's no, there's no account of Jesus being raised. There's only the proclamation that he has been. And so all we get is this picture of a new reality in the world. We're not given, there's no, and God raised Jesus from the dead this way in this moment. All we have is by the time they got there at the beginning of the day, it had happened. We're, we're told in, in kind of a first person perspective about the angel rolling the stone away. That action is described, but it's described in a way, such a way that the tomb's already empty when we get in there. So we have Mary and the other Mary, one of the only details that is consistent through all the, all the Gospels, and they get there. And what does the angel say to them? He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then he says this in verse 6. He said, he is not here, for he has risen. Now, you might be thinking that that, word is, that phrase is probably significant, and if you read the e news you know that it's significant because it's the name of the sermon this morning. The angel says to Mary and the other Mary, he is not here, for he is risen. Now, here's what's interesting to me. The women hear that from the angel, and the text tells us, after the angel tells them, gives them the instructions and goes to talk to the disciples, it says, so they departed quickly from the tomb. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. The women are the first to witness the resurrection. They are the first to see Jesus, but they only see Jesus after they leave the tomb, right? In this story, in the way Matthew tells it, the women don't witness the resurrection until after they have left, until they've been obedient to what the angels tell them to do. Now, remember where we started. The women knew Jesus was in the tomb. They had seen him go in there. And I don't know about you, but if I had seen him go in there and hadn't seen him come out, I would want to investigate. Right? I would be a little bit curious. And it's really interesting, again, the way Matthew tells it. And, and scholars agree that this is ambiguous, but one of the things that's interesting is the way Matthew tells the story, depending on just what you picture when you read it, 
and this is the same if you dive really deep into the grammar, it's unclear whether or not the women witnessed the stone being rolled away. Right? If you look at the language, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. Now, in, in English, the way we read that, it, it could kind of go either way. And if you read up on what Greek scholars have to say, they would agree. Matthew's ambiguous. It's, it's very possible he's telling the story in such a way that the stone rolled away as the women were standing there watching it. So let's just follow that line of thinking for a moment. It could be either one, but we're going to explore, allow ourselves to explore both. The women were there when the stone was was rolled across the tomb, right? They saw Jesus go in, the stone was rolled across. Imagine they come back and the stone is still there and they do witness it rolling open. And then the angel appears to them. I don't know about you, but I would be really tempted to peek my head inside. Because I saw him go in there, and I saw the stone be rolled away, and then I saw the stone roll back, and he didn't walk out. I would be very tempted to go in. And even if the other is true, even if the stone was already rolled away when I got there, even if the stone was already rolled away when I got there, even more so, I would, I would want to go in, I would want to look, I would want to see the place where they had laid the body, See if there was any, any anything in the ground. Any um, it's probably because we all today have watched too many crime scene dramas. Would inspect the scene for any any evidence of tampering that anybody. I'd want to go in and I'd want to look because I knew that Jesus was there. But the women don't do that. They're obedient to the angel. They say we know he was there, but we're gonna first of all be obedient. And we're going to leave and we're going to go where we're told to go. We're going to go to where we believe he will be. And it's in that act of obedience that the women become the first to see the resurrected Christ. Now, I don't know what would have happened if they had gone into the tomb. And, of course, who's to say? Maybe if they had gone into the tomb and looked around for a little bit and tried to examine the, clo- the cloths that were still there because we know they were still there, maybe Jesus would have just waited a few minutes before he appeared. I don't know, but what I do know for sure is that by going with haste, they saw him, and they didn't find him where they knew he was. They met him, they encountered him, they saw him as they went to where he was going. So I thought through this this week, I was reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples when he called them. He used very specific language, right? What were the words that he used? There's two of them. What did he say to his disciples? He said, follow me. Follow me. You notice Jesus never said, join me to his disciples. He didn't say, you're there, I'm here, come stand. It wasn't, it wasn't a verb of arriving. It was a verb of, of movement. It was a verb of, of join me as I go. And following Jesus means walking to this point today and a different point tomorrow. 
He said, follow me. Don't just come to where you know I am right now, but continue to look for where I'm going. See, church, I think this is where we often get ourselves into trouble, both in our personal lives and as a, as a body of believers, that we are so inclined to go to where we know Jesus was. That, that in my own personal life, I am inclined to say, well, there was this time when God moved in my life in this way, and it was at this camp, and it was at this altar, and so that's the experience that I need to recreate in order to see him again. I've seen people do this. I've, seen, I've had churches that I've visited that you could tell by the atmosphere of their worship that they were trying to recreate something. I've seen churches that, that had something spontaneous happen once that led to a, a revival, whether, whether small or big, and, and then those churches just start doing things intentionally, spontaneously, trying to recreate that. Hey, I think spontaneity is great. I think being, being open to the, the movement of the Spirit is great. I think there's nothing wrong with that, but they say, well, we saw Jesus moving here and in this way before, so that's where we're going to go again. And maybe that's, that could be something as simple as your devotional life. That This is how I've always read the Bible, and I'm just going to keep doing this it, this way, and, and maybe, maybe God is calling you to something new. It, it, we look to where Jesus was instead of where he is now. You see, I, I think what I've seen in the church, and again, I'm new here, so this is, I'm not talking about new beginnings. This is just my experience in churches over the years and throughout my life. We get set in a direction that this is how we do church. This is our schedule. These are our, this is our group of ministries. This is the time. This is the, these are the songs. These are the programs, and we just start marching, right? And we just, we do that, and 20, 50, 100 years go by. And, and it's not that we were wrong. Jesus was there in those places. Jesus was there in those ministries. He was working in those, but perhaps he's moving on to something else. And I wonder how many times in the church, again, I'm not saying this, this isn't my judgment of anyone here or anything we've done. All right? You take this, you pray about it, you listen, you decide if it applies. How many times is the church? Jesus is out in the world and he's ministering to a single mom. He's ministering to an abused child. He's wrapping his arms around them. He's loving them. And he looks around and he says, I could use some help here. Where is my church? And the church is in the tomb putting spices on an empty garment lying on a rock. Because that's what we went, that's what we went there to do. And it was good, it was noble. What the women were trying to do was wonderful. 
They loved Jesus. They wanted to anoint his body. They wanted to prepare him for burial. They weren't just cowering in fear like all the men were. They went out. They risked public ridicule and slander and worse to honor Jesus, to show their love for him. Everything about what they were doing, like so many of the things that we have done as a church, were wonderful until they realized that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. But can you imagine if they had walked, if they had heard from the angel and they said, well, but we were pretty confident that this is what we were supposed to be doing and this is what we're prepared to do. This is what our facilities are set up to do. Right? We've got all of this stuff. It's really heavy. We were planning on leaving it here, not carrying it back, so we might as well. And they, can you imagine how absurd if they had walked into the tomb and just anointed the empty racks. I really believe that all of us are prone to do that. We are, we are prone to be going this direction for the right reasons at the right time. And then God changes something. And there have been so many times in my life, I could, if I sat down and had my wife help me remember, because I don't remember things like this, I could probably give you 30 times this year that this has happened to me. That God gives me a task as an excuse to get me where he's leading me. Not, not to trick me, like no deception, just... Take the spices, go anoint my body. And it's not because Jesus wanted... The, 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 the drive the women felt to anoint his body, it wasn't because his body needed to be anointed. It's because Jesus wanted to reveal himself to them. So many times that's happened in my life that, that I see a path laid before me and I think I know where it's going, but God just wanted to to get me headed in the right direction. Spices were a great idea when Jesus was still dead, but he isn't anymore. And that's good news. Can you imagine if the women were disappointed? Well, we brought all these spices down here, and now what are we going to do with them? Can you imagine? That'd be absurd. He's alive. Oh, but I've done that. I've done that. I've been prepared to do something for God, and I've put work into it, and I've put effort, and I've put preparation into it. And he said, actually, no, that's, that's not actually what you're going to do. And I've grumbled about it. And Well, then why did I do all this work? And I, why did I do all this preparation? I've missed, I've missed something better. Because I was grumbling about where I thought God was leading me. The believers that thrive with new life in Christ, the churches that thrive with new life in Christ are the ones that are willing to follow a new path. Are the ones that are willing prayerfully, through the leading of the Spirit, through discernment, 
right? I'm not talking about just just talking about going all over the place. I'm not. The believers in churches that are willing to not be stuck in a routine, that are willing to say this was a wonderful ministry 40 years ago, but our cities are different now. That are able to say this was a wonderful practice at a time in my life. This was the way God worked in my life when I was younger, but now I believe he's bringing me somewhere new. That's where we witness the resurrection. That's where we witness the start of something new. Which I believe is something that we all want. We all desire God to continue working in our lives. So I look at this passage and I have to ask myself, how long, how long do I linger at the opening to that tomb when I receive new information, when I receive a new direction? How hesitant am I to turn away from that stone without taking a peek inside the rock just to be sure? How many times, how often am I hesitant to let go of the spices and perfumes that I have prepared? And are there times when I miss or delay witnessing God doing something incredible and something new? Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we, know, we know this is a Sunday of good news. And Father, we come before you today and, and we ask that if there's any way in our lives that we are hindering your ability to reveal that good news to us, that we leave it behind. God, we, your people, we want to serve you, we want to love you, we want to follow you. And at times it can be so challenging for us because we see so very little. And just as, as the disciples, as those women had, had no concept of, of what could be coming, they had no idea that, that you could even raise from the dead. They had seen so many miracles and so many powerful things, and for us looking back, it's easy to say to the disciples, how could you witness so many amazing things? How could you witness the raising of Lazarus and not believe that Jesus himself would be resurrected. But we also have to remind ourselves that for all of those miracles, for all of those things that they witnessed, you were there with them. That you were there by their side, that they could take comfort in your presence. And with you being gone, they lost all hope. But we also recognize, Lord, that without you, we don't have any hope either. And so when we are tempted to be discouraged, when we are tempted to just dig in and, and do what we knew you asked us to do before, as the angels instructed the women, let us not be afraid. 
And perhaps in addition to the command to not be afraid in reference to the angels standing there in their glory and the mighty work of moving the stone, perhaps the angels were also reminding the women not to be afraid of something that was too good to be true. To not be afraid to put their faith and hope in the resurrection. And perhaps some of us need to hear that instruction this morning as well. To not be afraid, no matter how old or young we may be, to not be afraid to see you do a new work in our lives. To not be afraid to allow you to move us in new directions with new purpose, to reach new people, to find new hope, to find new peace, to find new joy. I pray for us all, young and old, to receive this morning a new beginning, a new start of something good. May your spirit be at work in us and in our lives. And if we have areas in our lives where we have gotten stuck on what we were supposed to be doing before. May we be reminded that everything you touch, you redeem. May we be reminded that ultimately, Easter is the overturning of that which is broken, of that which is hopeless. That there is nothing that any human being can mess up that you cannot repair. There's nothing that, that we can do. We cannot walk too far that you cannot find us and draw us back. We can't break any relationship so much that you cannot put it back together. We cannot create a situation so hopeless that you just don't know what to do with it. But Jesus, you can redeem it all. As we go this Easter morning, as we celebrate with friends and family, as we gather around tables and sit together in living rooms, may your joy be with us. May your love be present. And may your church be alive. We love you, Lord. We praise the risen Savior this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.